If you have a Bible, I hope you'll find Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. We're going to look at three different chapters, four different stories uh, this morning. There are all kinds of people in the world, people with different interests. For example, there are dog people and there are cat people. Uh, There are mountain people and there are beach people. There are country club people and there are YMCA people. There are people who wake up in the morning full of energy and life, and there are people who hate people who wake up in the morning full of energy and life. There's coffee people, and there's tea people, and there's golf people, and there are tennis people. Uh, There are people who keep a clean house, and then there are people with children. Uh, There are people who love opera, and there's all the rest of us. But I think you get the idea. We're all different. We have all kinds of different interests, but there's one interest that we all have in common. In fact, it kind of unites the whole human race. Let's call it self-interest. It's the kind of interest that makes red lights in Memphis so dangerous. I think intersections in Memphis bring out the dark side of people. (laughs) It's me first. No, me first. It's the kind of interest that makes remote control. Who has the remote, uh, the precipitator of World War III in some of our families? Let's call it the me first mindset. It's the mindset that faces every decision, every action with one question, and that is, what will this do for me? How is this best for me? How does this make me look? How does it make me feel? If it increases my net worth, if it makes me feel good, if I want it, I'm in. If not, count me out. And I think we'd all agree that the me first mindset is incredibly destructive in families, in homes, in our country, in the workplaces. And none of us like to admit that we have this, but it is deeply rooted in every one of us. In fact, um, it's something that is basic to our human nature. It it first begins to appear when uh, we're born into this world as babies. So I want you to do this. I want you to take your hands and go like this. I know you don't want to do that. Go ahead and do that, Jason. Take your hands. Go ahead and do it, Jason. <laughs> yeah. So babies come into the world and they're going, feed me. I don't care if it's the middle of the night. I don't care how uncomfortable. Feed me. Change my diaper. Put a pacifier in my mouth. And then as we get a little bit older, it's, I want a car. I want an iPhone. I want a bike. I, and if that doesn't come under control, if something doesn't change, People get married and they do this, make me happy, meet my needs. And and people begin doing this with with God. Um, God, make me wealthy, make me happy, make me thin. This is your job, isn't it? Um, Make me happy. People choose churches on this basis. Pray for me, minister to me, fix my kid, fix my spouse, uh, make me feel good. And if you don't do it, I'm going down the road to another place. Maybe they'll show me a little more interest. This is just something that is across the board in in the whole human race. And it takes a tremendous toll on our lives, our marriages, our families. In fact, as I prepared this message today, I realized I'm a lot more self-centered than I thought I was. And in fact, I guess all of us would say there's a whole lot more of this in us than we care to admit. It's not new. In fact, the first time it appears is in the days of Adam and Eve. But there was a time 
when no one less than the Son of God himself confronted and exposed the me-first mindset. So you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to look at it uh, with me. Mark chapter 8 verse 31 reads like this. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So I just remind you the disciples have been with Jesus about two years and they have seen his miracles. They've heard his powerful teaching. They've come to respect uh, his wisdom. And now he begins to tell them that he's going to become a sin sacrifice. He is going to literally lay his life down as the ultimate act of selflessness of giving his life for the sins of the world. Verse 32 says, he was saying this plainly, so no figurative language. I mean, he could not be more clear. And Peter, verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it takes some gall to rebuke the Son of God. And I guess Peter didn't want to embarrass Jesus in front of the other disciples, so he takes him over to one side. Uh, it's the least he could do. And he lets him have it. You want to ask the question, why? What's driving his rebuke of Jesus? Maybe he has come to love Jesus so much he can't stand the thought of Jesus' suffering. Or maybe he thought the death of Jesus would be a, a tragic waste of his gifts and his power and his, his wisdom. Maybe this didn't fit his idea of, of who Messiah would be. I think there's something more behind this. I think there's something that has to do with the me first mindset. Let me, let me explain. If you study the life of Peter, you learn he was a day laborer. He, he was a fisherman. He had always been a fisherman. He would always be a fisherman, which meant life for him was, I get up in the morning, I go down to the beach, I get into the boat, I row out to the lake, I drop my nets, I pull them up, I, and do that all day long. At the end of the day, I roll back in, I count the fish, I take them to the market, I sell them, I buy food for my family, I go home, and tomorrow I'll do the very same thing. Life was very predictable uh, for Peter. And then he met Jesus, the most charismatic, powerful leader of his day. And he watches Jesus do miracles, feeding thousands of people, raising people from the dead. And Peter is his right-hand man. Peter's right there with him. The sky is the limit. Who knows where this is going? Maybe he's going to institute a new world over. He'll overthrow the Roman government. He'll become the king of the world. And Peter is right there with him. And then Jesus begins to talk about dying. And Peter sees his dreams go up in smoke. Self-centered people do not take lightly to having their parade rained on. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and say, that cannot happen to you. You think I'm being too rough on Peter? Look at verse 34, 33. Jesus turning and seeing his disciples rebuke Peter. So you've got a little mutual rebuke going on here. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Jesus says, Peter, you, you have no idea the grip Satan has on your mind. 
all you can think about is you. It's like you have mirrors on the inside of your glasses. And the way you're thinking was authored by hell itself. It was designed by Satan himself. You can't see the wonder of my redemptive plan. I don't think you care about the sins of the world, much less your own sins. You couldn't care what I'm going to go through out of my love for people. All you can think about is what this will do for you. And then Jesus gives the most remarkable passage, I think, that you'll ever read in all of your life. Jesus begins to give the key to true self-fulfillment. Jesus begins to talk about how to have a life that is so compelling, so fulfilling, so satisfying. He talks about how not to waste your life. So let me read beginning with verse 34. He called to him the crowd with his disciples. He wanted everyone to hear this and said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? And what can a man give in exchange or in return for his life? In other words, Jesus says, here's what you need to know. Number one, you will never see God's plan for your life, for your family, for your job, for your neighborhood, for your city, or your church, as long as your world revolves around you. Second, he says a life of self-interest, a life of self-indulgence leads to boredom, loneliness, dissatisfaction, frustration, and hell. And then he says, loving God and loving people Giving your life away is the key to fulfillment in life. You lose your life in order to find it. But if you try to save your life, he says, you will lose it. Now, what is the message promoted by our culture? I mean, you hear it everywhere in every every kind of media. It's in the air that we breathe. Indulge yourself. Life is about you. Fulfill your desires. Uh, Take off all the restraints. And if you'll do that, what's the promise? You hear from every side. If you'll do that, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be satisfied, you'll be content. And you only have to look around at our culture to see the lie that that is, to see the destruction that that brings. Friends, we live in a society, as you are so well aware, that is internally imploding right now. We are so bitterly divided as a culture. There are so many special interests, me first groups, um, tens of thousands of children lives being snuffed out every day. Uh, Escapism is rampant. Sexual perversion is legal and promoted. We live in a world where families are literally being torn apart. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ exposed the lie of the me first mindset, and he says, don't buy it. It's a lie scripted by Satan himself. Everything you hold dear, you'll lose if you focus upon yourself. Try to save yourself. Think of me first. You lose your life. You'll destroy one another. You'll destroy yourself. You'll destroy your church. You'll destroy your families. I think apart from Jesus himself, perhaps the best explanation of this came from the last paragraph of mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis said this, 
The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your true self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing you knew that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look out for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. I was about 20 years old when God got my attention through a university history professor named Dr. Dan Holcomb who would stand in front of the class from time to time and he would say this, class, true fulfillment never comes from self-indulgence. True fulfillment comes from giving yourself away to God and to other people. And there were a group of guys in, in, in that class. We would meet for coffee afterwards. We'd stay up late at night talking. And we, some of us said this, let's do it. Let's roll the dice. Let's believe Mark 8.35. Let's give our lives away. Let's do whatever we can to serve God and serve people. And there are guys from that class scattered all over the world giving their lives away and finding fulfillment, some in ministry, some in business. I was down on the Gulf Coast um, a few years ago with some folks from our church here at the Orchard working with an organization called Eight Days of Hope where people with various skills like uh, roofing and sheetrock and uh, plumbing and electrical uh, electricians could come in and rebuild houses down on the Gulf Coast. Homeowner after homeowner looked us in the eye and said, I can't believe you're doing this. You're taking your vacation? You're giving up your vacation to come down and work? Nobody does that for us here. Everybody's got a hand in our pocket. And you guys are having a, a ball doing it. Tim LaHaye, before he died, said he personally counseled 6,000 different people and he led 400 marriage life, family life seminars. Here's what Tim LaHaye said. I have never personally counseled one person with a servant attitude. On the other hand, the most miserable people I have ever met are those wrapped up in themselves. And Jesus keeps saying, what's it going to be, guys? What's it going to be? Short-term gain looks glittery, short-term buzzes, long-term loss. Or short-term loss and long-term fulfillment and joy. What's it going to be? And Jesus knew very well that the me-first mindset is so deeply rooted in us, it does not easily give up. Old habits die hard. So look at our text today. Um, Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 30. It says, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know where he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise and they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. I mean, the last time someone asked him something, he got called Satan. So they're trying to be quiet. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Uh-oh. This is like they're caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Verse 34, they kept silent 
For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, Jesus is talking about going to the cross, laying his life down, and they're like junior high boys on a baseball field arguing about who's the best, who's the greatest. And maybe one disciple says, I'm the greatest because Jesus chose me first. And another disciple says, well, I'm the greatest because I always sit next to him at the table. And Peter said, well, I'm the greatest because I walked on water. And someone else said, yeah, and you sank five steps out. There's this bickering, arguing, going back and forth. And Jesus exposes the me-first mindset. In fact, we find here several characteristics of a me-first mindset. And this is so subtle. It's easy to see in others, so hard to see in ourselves. Listen to these characteristics. Number one, you can know you have a me-first mindset. You're comparing yourself with other people. You ever do that? Of course you do. You're human. Either you're down because you feel like someone else is doing better than you, or you have pride because you feel like you're doing better than someone else. Second, your identity is tied to how you perform or what people say about you. In other words, you just can't take criticism very well. Number three, you can't celebrate someone else's success because if someone else is doing well, you feel like you're losing. Number four, you squeeze gifted people out of your life because you have to be the most talented, the most skilled. I mean, how comfortable are you around people who you think are better than you? Number five, you become judgmental and legalistic. You control people. Your heart gets hard. And number six, you want to have a say in everything. You can't stand to be overlooked. You see any of those signs in you? This is so subtle. Look at what happens with Jesus. Verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, he doesn't condemn them for wanting to be first. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. But he tells them how to do it. He turns the organizational chart upside down. And he says, those at the bottom who are serving at the bottom are the greatest rather than those at the top. It turns it upside down. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus says, you want to be first? Serve people who can do nothing for you. Serve people who can add no value to your life at all. Serve indiscriminately. Give your life away to people with no power, no status, no rights. Two powerful sermons, and they've got it right. Chapter 10 of Mark, verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. They're really into rebuking people. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. You don't read very often in the Bible where Jesus was indignant. And he said, you better let the little children come to me. How dare you hinder them? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples thought the kids were wasting their time, wasting Jesus' time. They were not important in Jesus' lays into them. Three powerful sermons exposing this me-first mindset. They've got it, right? Chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, 
We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise again. And you're going to love this. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Did you ever do that to your parents? Will you do for me whatever? What is it? Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in in your glory. In other words, when you come into your glory, uh, we'd like to be right there on the on either side, and we don't care who's on the right and who's on the left. That's up to you. We just want dibs on those seats, the best seats in the house. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Your me first thinking has so clouded your mind, you don't understand anything. All you can think about at this point is yourself. It's like he's saying, the more you talk, the more you embarrass yourself prominence, prominence, prominence. That's all I hear from you. And if you can't get it in this life, you want it in the next life. So look at what he says, verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink and be baptism with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we're able. And he said, the cup I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right or left, that's not for me to grant for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to them and said, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You ever had a boss like that? Thought he was God? And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Not among you, he says. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. I'll lead the way, guys. I'll empower you to do this. Four powerful sermons. Four exposés of the me-first mindset. And they've got it right. I want to take you to the night before Jesus dies. The night where His disciples are going to meet Him for the Last Supper. John chapter 13 describes that. It's the upper room and uh, I just want you to use your imagination for a moment. Uh, Here comes the first disciple in the room and uh, he stops for a moment and he looks around and he's trying to decide where Jesus is going to sit because he knows someday a famous artist is going to paint this picture and he wants to be right there in the picture. And then he looks for something else. He looks for He looks for the servant boy. You see, any host providing a dinner meal would provide a kid, a servant boy at the door, just a low-class, uneducated, poor child to clean people's feet. Because the streets had, there was no sewage system. Animals were in the street. There was mud. People walked with sandals and their feet were disgusting. And so you provided some kid there to clean everybody's feet. And so the disciple looks around and and question, who's going to do it? Who dropped the ball? Oh, I'm not going to do it. And he goes and sits down with dirty feet, smelly feet. Comes the next disciple. Look at his eyes. What's he thinking? Well, he's not going to do it. I'm sure not going to do it. 
And one after another, all 12 disciples come in the room, sit down. And you understand that they, they didn't sit in chairs like we did. They, they reclined at tables that were about 12 inches off the ground, which meant when they sat down and they reclined, they were dangerously close to each other's feet. They're kind of sticking their feet in each other's face and in their dishes. Jesus walks in the room. He stops for a moment. Look at his eyes. What's he thinking? Sermon after sermon. Illustration after illustration. And these guys won't wash each other's feet. And they won't even wash mine. So what does he do? Look at the eyes of the other disciples at this point. They're watching Jesus coming in the room. What's in their eyes? As Jesus takes off his coat, takes a towel, picks up a basin of water and begins moving toward them. What do you see in their eyes? Embarrassment? Disbelief? Self-recrimination? And as Jesus begins to wash their feet, look at their eyes. Why can't I get it? He's washing my feet. What's wrong with me? What, what, what can't I? What happened? What, what, what needs to change? Jesus washes the feet of his betrayer. Peter gives him a little bit of problem, but Jesus handles him. And then when Jesus finishes, he goes back, sits down and takes bread and he says, breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. He pours a cup of wine and says, this is my blood spilled out, poured out for you. And then he says this. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What if we did that in church? What if we washed each other's feet? I dare say you wouldn't want to do it because you wouldn't want anybody washing your feet because you think my feet aren't beautiful. Um, it's been a long time since I had a pedicure. I've got toe fungus. I, my feet are stinky. My, uh, smell it. You would know. I was in the Georgia Dome with a Promise Keepers conference years ago for pastors. And Jack Hayford, another pastor, I walked to a mic and he said, we're going we're gonna to stand on holy ground. We're going up to the mountain. We're going to meet with the Lord here in just a moment. And out of respect for God, I want you to take your shoes off. Now, it had been raining all day. And it was like a monsoon. Our clothes were wet. Our shoes and socks were wet. And have you ever been in a room where a guy took off his shoes? <laughs> 60,000 pastors took off their shoes in the Georgia Dome. People were dropping like flies. <laughs> it was horrible. And if we did that, I suspect we wouldn't want people washing our feet. Why? Because there's nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing wonderful about it. And it's the, it's the picture of what Jesus did on the cross when he came and he divested himself of his heavenly glory and came into our life 
and took on the form of a servant. The ultimate symbol of self-sacrifice, the ultimate symbol of servanthood is a blood-stained, body-fluid-stained cross where Jesus himself set the pace, produced the pattern, and died in the ultimate act of servanthood and self-sacrifice. To follow Jesus and to really find life. You want life? You want fulfillment? You want not to waste your life? That Jesus says you deny yourself. You renounce the me-first mindset. You adopt a father-first mindset, a others-oriented mindset. You begin to love God. You begin to serve. Follow Jesus, and you will find, not every day, but from time to time, the Holy Spirit himself will nudge you and say, here's another opportunity to die to yourself, to pick up a cross, love people, and find life. Let's pray together. Lord, no one becomes a Christian until they're willing to repent and turn from their sins, renounce a me-first mindset, and call you Lord, Lord Jesus. And you've told us that as we've received Christ as Lord, we're to walk in Him. So we pray that our lives, our families, our church, our area would become known for servanthood, for self-denial and cross-bearing and joy comes as a result. Help us to spend ourselves, to be spent for the sake of the gospel and as a result, find life that is life indeed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.